Blog Talk Radio. Center of the world. Latitude zero. Longitude zero. Planned by the Creator. Cisanthropus was the first man found on the earth. That earth was the motherland, Africa. We know that without total understanding of what happened in the past, it would be difficult to relate to the future. We know that within the structure of the music, there should be a message, and the message should be truth. So now, we give you Africa.
We 
My name is Haki Kumaki Mashoki, and currently I'm with African Awareness. And, of course, you know, my thing, Brother Africa, is all about institution building. You know, recently, you know, uh, in the last couple of weeks, uh, the Orange Menace has been railing against uh, Pro- 1619 Project. Now, 1619 Project essentially is to to take a, a, a rather more uh, critical look of U- U.S. history. And, of course, in taking a more critical look at U.S. history, then we come to the, we come to understand a lot of things that we've been told with respect to history, particularly U.S. history, is, in fact, uh, fundamentally uh, dishonest and wrong. So 1619 Project attempts to uh, to uh, alter that, that, that perception in terms of the correctness of uh, U.S. history. And, of course, one of the things that uh, Trump is adamant about is that in order to, if you teach the history correctly or honestly, then it means that the kind of self-esteem that a lot of these political leaders hold in the United States will be in question. In fact, the political system itself would be would be uh, suspect to subject to uh, to severe criticism in terms of you know uh, its evolution. So in event, well, I want you to check this out, Brother Africa. Now, the long legacy of cultural wars in the U.S. have existed from the origin of the U.S., starting with the slaughter of indigenous people in the Western Hemisphere. The notion of the culture's values and way of life posed a tangential implement, impediment to colonial expansion, paved the way for brutal extermination campaigns with little or no regard for the inhumanity inflicted on others. Cultural, cultural wars, initiated by powerful elites, were not content to be relegated to a single continent, but sought, a, but sought to subjugate entire hemispheres under the guise of manifest destiny. Manifest destiny resulted in the expansion of U.S. colonies and renewed killing of both indigenous, Indian, and Mesoamerican populations. Cultural wars did not end with Western U.S. expansion. The grandeur of Western culture compared U.S. political elites to think more broadly. Why relegate the gift of Western culture to a finite group of savages when the reality is many more are in need of Western guidance? Clearly, the only reasonable resolution was to expand the theme of cultural wars so as to impact the multitudes throughout the world who were disadvantaged culturally, and to remedy that situation by providing cultural tutelage to those non-Western populations in need. Pax Americana was the solution. American culture, like a superhero, would save the day. Unlike its predecessor, Manifest Destiny, Pax Americana would take its show on the road, impacting countries throughout the world, highlighting the correct way to run their governments. Unfortunately, the hubris of cultural wars ultimately insist that everyone fell down to its logic. Implicit in cultural wars is desire to control. Looking at the history of the conservative movement in the U.S., perception is conservative values are good for the country. On close inspection, the beneficiaries of culture, cultural wars, have always been wealthy elites who promulgate conservative values while engaging in deceptive and dishonorable strategy to amass more power for themselves. I should point out conservative values, or the connotation varies from person to person. This is my contention. Conservative values is a political construct designed to create perception that change, political, social, otherwise, is unwarranted. This belief is evident in reading Nancy McLean's book, The New World Order, Democracy and Change. The author lays out the relationship between right-wing billionaires and right-wing think tanks like the Heritage Foundation and the Heartland Institute. These entities, along with media, propagates the notorious, nefarious idea that cultural wars are being implemented by left-wing radicals to destroy U.S. institutions which have served the country as well as the people for centuries. A cursory look at U.S. history reveals U.S. institutions have never served the political, material, or social interests of the citizenry. 
In fact, U.S. institutions on rare occasions had promoted policies, i.e., New Deal, a great society, for the benefit of the citizenry. However, in hindsight, what appears to be beneficiary was, in fact, a strategy to appease the citizenry of setting the stage for future exploitation of the citizens. The real impetus behind culture wars by right-wing zealots is a return to social order which validates power, specifically power for white male wealthy property owners. Obviously, the beneficiaries of such an arrangement could never be working and or poor people, regardless of their ethnicity. So why would poor people, particularly Africans, subscribe to a philosophy where their very existence is negated by such a system? Certainly, ignorance plays a role, but the psychological implications should not be easily dismissed. Desire to be part of a superior culture is all the more tangible when you believe your culture is non-existent or subservient to Western culture. Now, the question I have for the community, African community is this. Now, defining oneself through the lens of American history is problematic. Even though socialization, to some extent, compels us to accept the norms of society, we must resist. Norms are often expressed in terms of history, tradition, and values promulgated by individuals in power. The manner in which norms are inculcated in our minds affect us on an unconscious level, meaning we have no control over the thoughts that define Africans in a negative light. The only way to confront the internalization of destructive thoughts is reading and discourse to access the deeper meaning of information. Malcolm X and Khalid Broder are perfect examples of that. My only question to the African community is this. Has the process begun in your household or your community? If not, it's important that you get busy in terms of uh, creating that dynamic in the community because the situation grows and grows more perilous as we speak. So let us not be deceived in terms of the economic realities that are confronted us we have to understand precisely what is going on and be able to formulate ideas in terms of how we're going to deal with the situation that we're confronted with. And having said that, Brother Africa, again, thanks for having me. Uh, thank you, Brother Aki. Next corner is Brother Moses. We welcome you to Africa on Move. Welcome, Brother Moses. Okay. Thank you, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Africa. And greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years in 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you once again, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. No problem. Glad to have you, Brother Moses. And right now, um, what we're going to do, we're going to take one more quick break, and when we come back, panelists, we want you all to talk about what's going on in your world and the community. We'd like to share our listening audience. We'd like to hear your, 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 your version, your reality, or as well, what's going on in your world and the community by calling 323-679-0841. We're going to share with you right now some music of liberation. We'll be right back. Something my God sent Elijah and Lil Durk and Corinne. To say the black of the best, the sweet of the juice, I think the dark of the flesh and the deep of the roots. I give a holler to my sister's own welfare. If don't nobody else care And uh, I know they like to beat you down a lot When you come around the block, brothers clown a lot So please 
right now we're dealing with our segment, What's Going On in Your World and the Community. And like always, I invite you to join us by dialing in at 323-679-0841. There are so many things going on in this world. We're going to reach out to Brother Haki right now and ask him, Brother Haki, what's going on in your world and the community? Well, Brother Africa, this uh, this whole question around vaccines, you know, a lot of times, you know, we don't want to talk about vaccines in a political context. But I think it's very important that we begin to talk about vaccines in a political a political uh, context. As much as we like to believe that there are there are those people out here who are committed to humanity and want to do the right thing in terms of providing uh, humanity with the necessary vaccines that they may need. For a kind of pandemic, the reality is that there are political systems in place which are diametrically opposed to the interests of humanity, and so therefore we we have to keep that in the back of our mind whenever we're talking about the dissemination of vaccines. And the reason this is important because recently the recent uh, episode in the, in the, in Africa, uh, which is very very problematic in that uh, uh, there's been a real setback in terms of polio in the, in Africa. And let me just so I want you to check this out, Brother Africa. Now, Western geopolitical concerns implies that weak, debilitated Africa serves Western interests by creating conditions in Africa which makes exploitation of its resources easier to obtain. During the AIDS epidemic, the CIA offered a paper in 1987 detailing why it is not in the U.S. interest to develop a vaccine for AIDS. Countervailing forces opposed the plan, reasoning other states would innovate a vaccine, thereby cementing good relations with African states. Even though common sense prevailed, the enduring logic of a destabilized Africa being beneficial to Western interests persists into the 21st century. The most recent example of indifference to Africa centers around claims polio has been eradicated in Africa. Such reports are wildly misleading. According to World Health Organization, WHO, two of the three strains of wild polio have been eradicated worldwide with the elusive third strain still active. Proclaiming Africa is free of wild polio amidst geopolitical realities. Reports alleging the end of polio does not take into consideration seven African states prior to announcing the end of polio in Africa had already received vaccines for wild polio. Now, these seven countries, Morocco, Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, Nubia, Somalia, and Djibouti, are considered not to be part of Africa but part of the eastern Mediterranean region. According to the World Health Organization, this division is devised to ensure the maximum exploitation of African resources. In highlighting political visions imposed on Africa, it gives us insight into specific methods employed by Western states to ensure a destabilized and weakened Africa. However, these machinations doesn't end there. The term wild polio is explicitly used to divert attention from real issues affiliated with polio vaccines in Africa. The Global Polio Eradication Initiative began in 1988 and has been very effective thus far. Prior to disseminating polio vaccine in Africa, the effectiveness of the vaccine was evident in that by 1979, polio in the U.S. was eradicated. And the efficacy, or, the, or the, uh, how effective it was, of polio vaccine established. In Africa, effectiveness treating wild polio witnessed a setback. The term wild polio entered the public lexicon and distinguished it from standard polio and its resurgence. The once promising polio vaccine effective in the West was no longer curing polio in Africa, but now contributing to the ill health and death among Africa's children. 
While wild polio statistics were praised, it did not highlight the wild adverse impact of polio vaccines against the most vulnerable children, Africa's children. Now, recently, the 21st Century Wire released a report exposing deaths of children in Africa consuming polio vaccine. As a result of taking these polio vaccines in Africa, children are being paralyzed and having difficulty breathing. Information of the brain and central nervous system has been compromised, <clears throat> making it impossible for these kids to live a long and fruitful life. Ironically, the epicenter of this newly derived virus, so-called type 2 polio, originates out of the countries of Chad and Nubia, what some of us call, refer to as Sudan. Officials fear this deadly strain, courtesy of approved vaccines with proven efficacy, potentially could threaten global populations. Precisely why this effective polio vaccine has become less effective, more deadly in Africa is up for speculation. The fact the World Health Organization sought to consider this information only leaves credibility to minds that see the world in political terms. In addition to, upon closest scrutiny of this mishap, lies familiar names affiliated with world depopulation schemes. Specifically, I'm referring to Bill and Melinda Gates. Currently funding the Global Polio Eradication Initiative, which is directly implicated in the tragedy unfolding in Africa. The Gates Foundation also funds the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, or GAVI, uh, for poor countries. Now, GAVI is currently heading up research for COVID-19 in of all places in Alzania, South Africa. Let's see how far, let's see what happens with this one. Let's see how this one turns out. So it's going to be very interesting in terms of what kind of impact this vaccine is going to have on the people, uh, you know, um, in the long run. So anyway, Brother Africa, I found that very, very fascinating in terms of this, this, this reversal in terms of the effectiveness of the vaccine. So now in Africa, it's not as effective as it was for, for most of the rest of the world. And so clearly there is a, a real disconnect in terms of um, the praise, you know, for these vaccines and the outcomes when it comes to Africa. So fundamentally we got we got to agree, Brother Africa, that there's something really wrong in terms of dissemination of these vaccines, and why is it? What is it about this vaccine in Africa? The same Afri- the same vaccines reported other people throughout the world. Why is it having a debilitating, debilitating impact on African masses of folks? We have to ask ourselves precisely what's going on here. So we got to be very, very clear that vaccines are not always in the best interest of humanity, and we must follow these situations very, very closely. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next we go to Brother Anthony. We're going to ask him what's going on in your world and community, Brother Anthony. Um, <clears throat> a few things, uh, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to everyone. Um, it seems as if um, there's been um, there's been an effort to use religion in order to justify police repression inside the U.S. and throughout the capitalist countries of the world, in particular, um, the New Testament chapter, Romans, uh, uh, Book of Romans, uh, chapter 4, has been used to justify uh, uh, poli- uh, the, the police repression against African and other oppressed people living in the capitalist countries of the world, and um, and this uh, bears serious attention because uh, we have to pay attention to 
the ways in which our uh, our religious beliefs are being used as a tool of oppression by capitalism. And this is the latest development in that process. And, um, you know, so, um, you know, uh, and also the... Um, uh, the uh, 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 the repression against uh, people going on in various cities inside the U.S. is intensifying as it gets closer to election day. That's what I have at the moment. Brother Anthony, before we go to Brother Moses, can you talk just a little bit more for our listening audience against some of the examples of how you see Religion is being used as a way to justify support official police terrorism inside the United States against African communities. Okay. Um, well, uh, well, what what is being done is uh, is the the ruling class is conflating obedience uh, to God with obedience to law and order. And that if you don't, uh, and if people don't obey uh, the laws in a particular society, that's equivalent to, to disobedience uh, uh, to God. Even though not all laws are just, and uh, not all laws represent the interests of the masses of humanity, which a lot of people don't understand. And so, uh, you know, there is uh, an ideological current going on, uh, which uh, you know, um, you know, equates uh, following law and order with being uh, uh, obedient or faithful to God. And uh, what capitalists are doing is exploiting people's re- uh, spiritual or religious beliefs to order to justify. The oppression of uh, African people, especially. Okay, we are coming back have some discussion on that with our panelists right now. We now go to our brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world in the community? Well, 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 it's been a week. <clears throat> First of all, um. They verified and documented and um, and uh, um, explained that uh, the president has, has just been a con man, as we've always been saying. He was just a con man, and so this week, Woodward and, um, and the Washington Post and the media just laid it out exactly what happened during this COVID nineteen epidemic. And uh, pandemic, and um, how he dealt with it, and uh, basically he just quote didn't want to panic the population, but basically he admitted that he just conned people. He quote confidence. He wanted to maintain confidence, and um, so that's that's. But that just that just documents and verifies what everybody always knew, who had any sense anyway, already knew that this man is not. Not it's incompetent and has no business in the office. Um, meanwhile, there's fires burning in California. 
There's a hurricane in, down in New Orleans and the border area. Um, there's a lot of impact on the population. Uh, people need a government now more than ever that's, that's socialist. They, they really need, uh, if, if any time we need one, it's in these kinds of emergencies. And so um, meanwhile, there's a brother, I didn't write his name down, um, just got um, two white police officers jumping on him, beating on him, uh, put him in the hospital. Uh, and his children and his wife were there screaming, trying to stop the police, the two officers from white officers from beating on him. And uh, anyway, um, they say one of the officers was fired. Um, uh, I don't have the details and the names and stuff. I didn't write it down, but it'll be it'll be prevalent on the news. Uh, and also, let's see what else. Um, yeah, that was the case um, in Georgia. Right, um, and then lastly, the, in California, I guess it was Los Angeles, two police officers got shot uh, by some unknown assailant and trying to track him down. And uh, it just shows that you know, as this capitalism deteriorates and it becomes more and more evident that the state is that, that we're enemies of the state, or the state is declared as, as enemies, and the people's consciousness. Uh, it's getting displaced aggression, shall we say, um, in terms of how to really solve the problem. But um, Malcolm said the chickens come home to roost, and um, um, it's definitely that kind of mentality that uh, that uh, when you when you look at it uh, and analyze the state and the government, this repressive repression and this black lives being killed every week as routine and regular. You, you kind of understand what he's talking about. And so I'll just leave it right there. It's been an interesting week. Thank you. Right, thank you, Brother Moses. And this Brother Haki, in terms of looking at these various phenomena that are taking place that you, Brother Moses, and Brother Effie articulated, I want you to pause for a few minutes and concentrate on this piece going back in the day. We're going to take a piece that was um, from Kwame Nkrumah and talk about this whole question of um, Africa, this whole question of Africa and African unity, and look at, during that time, uh, the issues and concerns and the forces Africa has to deal with, and look at today's reality and compare them, contrast them, and let's begin to connect the dots. So we can go back. We're going to go back home and listen in Kuma for a few minutes, and um, we're going to have a discussion and talk about Kwame, face of Africa. Ghana, we now have freedom. Africa wants a freedom. Africa must be free. Oracles indicated that Kwame Nkrumah was a devil. Mr. President, Mr. President, there is a coup. I've never seen such an explosion. Africa, unite. 
complain speaking for the sake of Africa. Let us speak plainly. As I see our greatest danger stems from disunity and the inability to see that the realization of our hopes and aspirations, the realization of our objective of total African independence and of our future progress and prosperity is inextricably bound up with the necessity to unify our policy and actions in connection with the continuous struggle for independence and the greater tax of economic and social reconstruction beyond it. We need unity within the ranks of independent states. We need unity within the ranks of the freedom fighters still struggling to achieve independence. And we need unity between the already independent states and the freedom fighters. I do not think that too much stress can ever be laid upon this need for unity. It is our unity that the imperialist agencies are trying every means to obstruct and sever. It is the idea of African unity that they fear most. It seems only intelligent, therefore, for us to close our ranks and compact our forces. If we independent states were unified in a political and economic union, having a common foreign and defense policy, controlling a unified military command, you should be in a much stronger position to assess the territory still struggling for independence. An overall economic plan covering an Africa united on a continental basis must increase our total industrial economic power. Hence, our combined strength, reinforced by a common purpose, would add enormously to the united front we, we could turn against the enemy. So long as we remain disunited, so long as we remain balkanized, whether regionally or in separate national units, we shall be at the mess of imperialism and colonialism. We must therefore face the issue of African unity now, for only unity will make the artificial boundaries and regional demarcations imposed by colonialism obsolete and superfluous. African unity will thus provide an effective remedy for border disputes and international troubles. In a united Africa, 
There could be no frontier claims between Ethiopia and Somalia, or between Zanzibar and Kenya, Guinea or Liberia, or between Ghana, Togoland and the Ivory Coast. Because because we would regard ourselves as one great continental family of nations. Among the new states in Africa are some which, through fragmentation, have been left so weak economically that they are unable to stand on their own feet. This is the result of a deliberate policy of the withdrawing colonial powers who have created in Africa several small, feeble, unstable, and unbearable states in the hope of ensuring their continued dependence upon the former colonial power for economic and technical aid. Indeed, the intention goes further than that and is more insidious. It is to produce a political atmosphere as dangerous to the safety and progress of African independence as that which followed the establishment of the many friable nations which were created in Eastern Europe by the Congress of Vienna in 1814 to 1815. The underlying design is to induce national jealousies and rivalries such as nourish the outbreak of the First World War. At best, it is hoped that such a policy may lead to open conflict. At worst, it must present tough obstacles to the movement for total African freedom and African unity. This is the inner plan of new colonialism, the latest instrument of imperialism. While relinquishing political rule, it contrives to control the foreign and internal policy of the state. It still dominates through the pastoral of material age. In effect, only the outward forms have changed, but the substance of colonialism remains just the same. Foreign imports are still protected, local development is clamped down, social progress is retarded, and fiscal policy is controlled from the metropolitan capital. The impact of these semi-independent states on the liberation of Africa is calamitous. Bound up as they are with the policies of their sponsors, they are unable to take a determined independent line on issues involving the colonialists and the still enslaved people of this continent. Some of the leaders, it must be confessed, do not see the struggle of their brother Africans as part of their own struggle. Even if they did, they would not be free to express their solidarity. This rift are consciously created by the imperialists between Africans, where they can sit back and watch with slight satisfaction, as well as contempt for those who fail to see how they are being used against Africa's best interests. Regrettably, regrettably, 
Those states include some who were among the freedom fighters of yesterday and who haven't won their independence are willing to drop it for some token aid and thereby deny to those still struggling for freedom even their moral support. Here is a phenomenon against which all African freedom fighters must be on their guard and resist with the utmost. Even though I appreciate the difficulties facing us, I must admit I find it strange to watch some of us returning willingly to the colonialist fold. This time, they don't even have the excuse of being forced to subject themselves to foreign domination. It makes one wonder why so much effort and sacrifice and so many lives were given up to the achievement of independence in the first place, if it can only be so quickly and easily surrendered. Unhappily for us, colonialism creates in some intellectual allegiances which are not severed at the moment of independence, but remain to condition loyalties away from Africa towards the metropolis would trust them. They are unable to disappear, to accept the idea that Africans can get together to make a viable and growing concern of a combined African continent, but rather see their salvation in coming together in association like the Franco-African community mooted recently at Bangu. Although there are many here who speak English, French, Spanish, or Portuguese, nevertheless, we are all Africans. <laughs> Africans fighting for Africa's independence, Africa's unity, Africa's future.
listen to some of the issues that Confute and Kumu was confronting with, confronting and dealing with when he came to power around his whole question of African independence and sovereignty, and some of the forces and issues that faced Africa during that time. And I ask you, looking at what's happening today, has anything changed, and who are these same forces that see exist today that cause the same problems and issues that Africa has today? So let's just stop right here. Brother Haki, you raised the issue about the importance of looking at historically the role of outside forces, particularly i.e. Western Europe, as it relates to their intentions and use of vaccines and vaccinations. And you alluded to that for some reason or another, the proposal vaccinations are not working and have the same results what people and children of Africa as relates to other human beings outside of Africa. So listen to Nkrumah's message and looking at what you know today, what we see today, what parallels can we draw from the past to the present or looking at the conditions and realities of Africa? Has anything really truly fundamentally changed? What is that struggle all about? Yeah, well, the, the reality is, the political reality is, nothing has really changed. And the reason why is very, very simple. One of the things that uh, when, when Kwame Nkrumah talks about the necessity in terms of African unity, he's not speaking, you know, um, generically. It's important that if you're going to confront an adversary, if you're going to confront an enemy, then you have to be organized and consolidated. It's very, very simple. It's a very, very simple concept. The closest, closest analogy is that if you look at the situation in the United States in terms of the harsh treatment that African people and the working class people are confronted with, let's deal with African people. If you look at the harsh oppression that are confronting African people, specifically when you talk about police violence uh, or you talk about infant mortality rates or you talk about poor schools or any number of issues, when you look at that, you're talking essentially you're talking about a system. You would think that in, 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 the, in, in, in the most uh, realistic sense, of, in the most realistic sense, that you would think that given these obstacles in the African community, that the that the thing that to do is to unify and to consolidate. You would think that would be just a normal reaction, but it's not a normal reaction. In fact, the whole issue in terms of class plays prominently in terms of pitting you know Africans against one another, not just on the continent of Africa, but here in the United States as well. So, in the context of the United States, those Africans who have the resources, the means in which to change the conditions, don't do so. The question is, why don't they use their wealth to change the material conditions of their people by first changing the way our people think? Well, clearly to do so means you jeopardize your, your, your money. And so, therefore, in that context, they're not willing to jeopardize potentially making more money by actually trying to empower their people. And so, therefore, they become willing accomplices of the, the same processes that literally, um, not only hamper, but actually literally destroy African lives in this country. The same is true in Africa. Uh, you have Western African leaders who, who understand quite clearly. I mean, we talk about ancient people, I and mean, we talk about people who are beginning – I mean, we're talking about people who've been around from the beginning of time. They're very intelligent people. So African people are very intelligent. So they understand politically what the, real, what the reality is. The question is, you know, uh, do they benefit 
from acknowledging that reality exists and then moving to do something to, to change that reality. Well, if they do that, then it means that all those investors that they receive in terms of money they can put in their pockets or means that there will be a fundamental reduction in terms of the money into their pockets, so therefore they now have a desire in terms of actually trying to change the paradigm that, that, that is going to find the African people on the continent. And that is a fundamental problem that you have. See, if Africa was, in fact, was consolidating and had African people on the same page in terms of doing that, in fact, one of the things that Gaddafi tried to do, he tried to use his own gold reserves to create a United Bank of Africa. That ultimately led to Gaddafi being killed. Now, if Africa was consolidated, killing Gaddafi wouldn't have stopped that, that, that program. But because Gaddafi was thinking ahead of the, ahead of the game, uh, by eliminating him, it set Africa back. And so, therefore, the consolidation of Africa is very, very important that we have that. But first and foremost, you've got to have African leaders who understand, who are principled enough to understand that the, that the people need them, that the continent needs them, that humanity needs them. But that's, of course, that's easier said than done. The whole opportunism that exists in the mind of people, the whole class situation that exists in the mind of people is very, very tangible. And so, therefore, it's not easily dissuaded. For instance, in America, back in the 80s, I mean, back in the 70s, one of the things that Richard Nixon did that was very, very clever was called class stratification. What he did was that he pitted African people who were, quote, unquote, middle class against all other Africans, working class and or poor Africans. It was a convenient strategy because what happens is that he could use those few Africans who were actually doing well, promote them on television, and tell the world or tell the African population specifically that the situation of the oppression of African people has changed Everything is equal now, so now you just relax. It was a strategy that worked, by and large, because of the opportunism and the classes that exist in the, in the minds of in the minds of in the minds of African people. It's not to say that classes don't exist in all people. Of course, it does. But when you're talking about an oppressed people, the question in terms of class become pivotal in terms of you're going to prevail in terms of the struggle against oppression. Then you got to deal with that question of class. If you don't overcome the question of class. That's the way conceivable for us to win, for us to move forward. And this is what those brothers and sisters with the large bank accounts making the money have to understand. Uh, you know, I listened to a brother the other day. He talked about the fact that he's talking about uh, bitcoins. He's talking about, you know, uh, block, you know blockchains. And, and that's fine. And certainly that's, certainly that's needed. That's certainly a vehicle in terms of uh, economic gain, and there's no question about that. The question is that even before the question of economics, the question is, okay, if you're successful in terms of getting some wealthy Africans together in terms of blockchain, making trades in terms of Bitcoin to enrich themselves, how does that manifest in terms of the interests of African people generally? So the class issue uh, is, is prominent in terms of our move forward. And one of the things that the, 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 the West understand, the ruling class understand, as long as they can continue to divide us, they can continue to conquer us. It's very simple. It's not, it's not algebra. It's not trigonometry. It's not, you know, it's not calculus. Is very straightforward. So no one has to be a PhD to appreciate when, when I say, you listen, as long as they continue to split you, they can continue to control you. It's, very, it's, very, it's also self-evident. So I think that's fundamentally the problem that we have as African people you have the world, that, that opportunism and class issue has to be dealt with because that's the way to move forward unless we deal with that. Because un, un, uh, unfortunately, when we talk about terms of being in a position to actually uh, get things achieved relatively easy, of course, and the role, money does play a role in terms of being able to facilitate getting things done easier. It's not to negate struggle. Struggle is a necessity, and you've got to have it. Uh, brothers and sisters who struggle and pay the price, who have done no economic gains in terms of struggle and, 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 and standing up against the system, there are no economic gains to be had. 
But those brothers and sisters who, for whatever reason, don't want to engage in that particular kind of struggle can engage in another kind of struggle in which you use that wealth that you have in terms of the empowerment of your people. But you first and foremost got to acknowledge there's a problem. And secondly, you have to acknowledge this question in terms of class. So for anybody who thinks that, in fact, that material things make you better than someone else, I, su- I submit that you have swallowed the Kool-Aid. Because the more that we believe this stuff that things define us as human beings, then the more we are susceptible to all kind of manipulation by the West. Point in fact, black conservatives. I, and I, I, I particularly don't like talking about them because I tell you, uh, one of the things is that uh, the, the, the opportunism that exists and the, the classism that exists in the minds of black conservatives, I'm telling you, uh, these brothers and sisters are very, very dangerous. Uh, Malcolm X talked about the, the, the schism between you know, the so-called uh, conservative um, white folks and the liberal white folks in terms of two, two sides of the same coin. Well, when you think about in terms of these, when you talk about these, these black conservatives, you've got to appreciate the fact, you know, that they're just as deadly, just as scary as any white conservative or any white liberal who, who professed on one hand to be liberal, but in reality is very conservative or racist in terms of their worldview. So clearly, you know, uh, you know that, that question in terms of class has to be addressed because with, without addressing that question of class, Moving forward become much much more difficult, not impossible. Just become extremely much more difficult, which means that the number of lives that got to be sacrificed, as was, you know, because we don't have uh, uh, that unity, is a direct result of the class schism that exists in the African community. You know, Brother Anthony, you'd like to respond to that phenomenon as we look at the issues that Nkumi spoke to. He said he was confronted with back then, and the phenomenon are going on today as it relates to the problems that we are dealing with, uh, whether it's through biological warfare or vaccinations, or whether it's through uh, organized armed official terrorism within the borders where African people live to fight against them, whether it's, you know, I mean, you name it. What parallels can you draw between? issues that he addressed that he will, he will fight in versus today as we speak? Uh, there are a number of parallels. There has been change, but the essence of our oppression and exploitation remains the same because we have not yet achieved that political unity that Nkrumah uh, uh, fought so hard for uh, throughout the course of his life. And what has changed over the decades are change in methods or technology of keeping uh, Africa under uh, capitalist domination. Uh, And uh, whereas when he was living... He was confronted primarily with colonialism and settler colonialism. And uh, neocolonialism was emerging as a new method of exploiting the African masses. Today, that is the dominant form of oppression. And uh, what has intensified is the, is the class struggle um, uh, 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 among Africans worldwide, um, in in the days of direct colonialism and settler colonialism, 
Africans, regardless of where uh, uh, of what wealth they had, were oppressed indiscriminately based upon their nationality. And today, uh, we enter a more dangerous phase in which uh, the face of imperialism are are these wealthy African uh, are the wealthy African bourgeoisie. And uh and uh and and because and it's a much harder battle because we're fighting against the internal contradictions among ourselves. And the ideological struggle has to be intensified also. And um, you know, the fact that we uh have not achieved political unity is the reason why Africa is weak and fragmented as it is today. Uh, when, uh, when, 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 when Libya was attacked by the forces of imperialism, there was not one African country that lifted or came to the aid to, 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 uh, to stop uh, that onslaught. Uh, by the imperialist forces, and it's telling that it was uh, done under the guise of an uh, of an administration that was led by somebody that looked uh, that 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 looked African, and uh, that is a very telling sign of, uh, of how intense the class struggle has become. So we're facing a similar set of problems; they've become more intense. And the difference is the technology that is used. Uh, you didn't have, um, uh, you, uh, you know, the mass vaccination campaigns going on during Nkrumah's time, time that you see today, for example. And uh, so uh, we have to organize and fight harder to achieve the political unity uh, that would that is necessary to defend ourselves, to defend our homeland, and defend our sovereignty. Brother Moses, give me your take on what you heard from lessons and issues in Fukuma we're facing, and looking at what we're dealing with today. Are there any um, connecting dots and? Things we can draw from the past to the present. Well, we're still being oppressed, and uh, skin color still matters. Uh, um, and um, we find a situation where we're looking at at uh, at a, a, a a leader in the government, the president of the United States, who has basically declared that Democrats, progressives, socialists, and communists are the enemies, and that's his position, basically. He, he's trying to stop and institute a fascist program. And so, you know, we we have to unite um, in, in terms of um, our common oppression and recognize that and see and look through and see that the class basis of, of the whole system, the whole system is built upon the ruling class, and um, and you know, all due respect 
to black women, but it is black men that are that are that are they most fear. Um, they, you know, every time they shoot, it's like they 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 are in fear of their life, etc., etc., etc. I mean, they they have some kind of uh, um, subconscious desire to keep black people subservient and uh, any any assertiveness on the part of black people in terms of demanding their rights or uh, indicating that they know their rights uh, is, is being repressed and is seen as a, a seen as um, a challenge to the social order as it that exists and they they won't have that they they respond with with backlash and reaction and uh, repression and so you know we we have to um, unite and uh, and and see, unite with with people who 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 have a common uh, interest in in this in in getting rid of this oppressive capitalist system, and that is the working class. And I have faith in the working class will meet rise to the challenge and um, and throw off this. These shackles, and um, I'm just determined that sooner that we just have to keep working and working and working and uh, and educating and educating and educating, and uh, we will over, overcome that fear and uh, unite. I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Uh, Brother Africa, let me just interject real quickly. Uh, Brother Moses, just just one correction. Uh, the fastest growing population in terms of those been in prison are African women. First thing. The second thing in terms of when 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 the killings happen uh, directed against African women, it doesn't get the media coverage uh, that uh, it do for for African men. So therefore, there's a political narrative at play in terms of you know making us believe that in fact the killing of African men is more of an issue for for the men as opposed to the women, when the reality is happening to both men and women in the African community. So I just want to throw that clarification out there. Okay. Pat, let me just raise some of these um, understandings of our reality or perceptions of our reality that may play into this equation of our today's reality. When you look at many of these so-called European think tanks and look at their initiatives, look at their projections, look at their desires, one of the Datas, or some important datas that they have among African people and people non-European, because I, I refuse to continue to use the word people of color. Let's just say people non-European. I think there's a better terminology if we won't lump everybody who are not Europeans. There's people non-Europeans. One thing is Africa, to realize Africa is a very young continent in terms of its population. I think I remember reading a report like the age of 18 to 30, about 50 to 60 percent of their population is just in the age group. They have very young population and has the potential to do all kinds of things based upon their youthness. Also, if you look at the demographic in, in the U.S., there used to be um, publications who used to always um, point out that by the year, I believe, 2040, 2050, that the demographics of the population inside the United States 
will be predominant people non-European. Africans and other non-European, non-European people. And they became very alarming, or understanding the demographic in Europe. For the last couple of decades, they have a zero growth population. Their population has a zero growth. Whereas in Africa, Central South America, and areas of people that dominated, they are dominated, or, or not being European, they have a, a, a progressive population growth. And then you have on record people like M- Melissa and and uh, her husband, um, Mr. Gates, and others. They talk about creating models, trying to design a model that deals with population control and how quickly they can eliminate so many people from this world. And when you look at the various aspects of wars that are going on against Africa, African people, and people non-European, I think we really understand the word wars because I think we're being hoodwinked by wars just being based upon physical might by using, you know, uh, bombs, you know, guns, etc. You're standing last wall. But we're not looking at walls in the form of it can be biological, it can be chemical, it can be ideological, it can be psychological. All these things are taking place now that they have put in place their tools to carry out their agenda. The question for me again is do we really see the real picture? that these wars that are taking place now are more destructive than any kind of military war could be. And they can be done in such a way where it would be hard to recognize it as forms of warfare. So right now, I read a report in Azania, South Africa. They have always started Brother Haki's vaccination program where he targeted the young, young, young folks, the young the young, the young children, and giving them vaccines by the million. And we understand the history of Western nations and what vaccine historically has meant to us. We see in the United States where they are now talking about giving vaccines to the children while parents having to say so, but do it while they're in school. Why such a plan to do in the school and not allow them the parents have a have a say so. We see the US has policies against countries like Venezuela, Cuba, I mean you name it, where they are denying these countries basic medical resources to fight against these so called viruses and stuff. So given all of these um all these the, the methods of warfare, I ask you, do we begin to accept anything they say? Do we begin to accept anything that WHO, World Health Organization, tell us? Do we begin to accept a man who admittedly they lied and continue to lie to you? about whatever is going on as it relates to the pandemic? Yeah, well, 
you know, these you're right about the Africa. The way in which war is perpetuated is on many, many different levels. We've been conditioned in the West, specifically in America, to think war in terms of bomb, missiles, planes, ships, and so forth. Not understanding that the way in terms the methodologies employed in war varies. In fact, uh, one of the, the, the terms they use is banded about is hybrid wars. So it's a way in which you attack your adversary, you know, many, many different ways. In fact, uh, Africa is, is under, under constant attack in terms of hybrid wars. Not only do we talk about military intervention in terms of into African states, but you also talk about the vaccines that, are, that adversely impact the, the, the population. Uh, we talk about in terms of promoters' notion, in terms of the, the tribalism, promoters' notion, you know, uh, you know, um, where they would actually have relationship with certain tribes for the sole purposes of empowering that tribe, for the, for the sole intent to further drive uh, of the uh, relationship between that tribe and other tribes further apart. So they have many, many ways in terms of doing that. And the, and the problem is that we have to fundamentally recognize the nature of war. The problem is that this is all done, you know, um, under the table. And so, therefore, the problem in terms of understanding the nature of hybrid wars, it means you have to read. You've got no other choice. You know, nobody can tell you everything in terms of how to initiate hybrid wars, you know, particularly when it comes to the African continent. So it's incumbent upon people to actually read, to begin to understand, you know, just uh, just you know, just how intuitive, just how how surreptitious, how sneaky they are in terms of you know waging war against Africa. Uh, there's no question about it, and it's having devastating. This hybrid wars against Africa is having devastating impact. And the things that I alluded to earlier, when we talk about in terms of African leaders, you know, one of the things is that you know, this this notion in terms of being Western educated and believing, in fact, you know, Western value system, which say that money is more important than anything else have no understanding whatsoever in terms of the history of Africa in terms of their own people. Their, their frame of reference is, 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 is primarily one of the West, in the Western context, and so therefore they don't even understand their own history in terms of, you know, how they specifically how they deal with things in the past, particularly when it comes to economics. So you got this problem in terms, so you got this problem in terms of hybrid war. So it would be nice, Brother Africa, if in fact you could get people to, 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 to engage that topic, to want to know more about, you know, why this stuff goes on. It's a very difficult thing to do because the people position is that, you know, number one, you know, I don't need to know about that, you know, uh, because it's not important to me. Or if you think I'm going to read tons of books in terms of assessing what's going on, it ain't going to happen. Uh, if as long as those kind of stumbling blocks exist in the minds of people, then they would never understand the complexity in terms of what's happening in terms of these hybrid wars that are being waged in Africa, not just Africa. But uh, you alluded to Cuba, you alluded to Venezuela, and Nicaragua. What happened to Bolivia? You know, of course, you know what happened to Bolivia when they, 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 they I mean, physically, they forced um, um, uh, the brother um, Evo Morales. Evo Morales, they literally forced that brother out. I mean, they, were, they, they brought a plane for him, said, here's the plane, here's your options. You're going to leave or you're going to die. So the brother had no choice. And now the murders and the political repression and all that stuff is, is horrible. But it's precisely how the game is played. You know, you've got to understand the nature of the beast. And one of the problems in terms of, you know, when you talk about oppressed people, it's very difficult sometimes to get the oppressed people to understand the nature of the beast. Uh, I mean, because the bottom line is about Africa, not to be making excuses or any kind of rationalization in terms of, you know, uh, the, the, the cold reality. But when you're caught up in struggle, one of the things that one of the things you don't have a time to do is to actually do a lot of reading. I mean, that's just a cold reality. So you have to theorize or create different kinds of ways in terms of engaging people who don't have that kind of time. 
you know, I think about it all the time. I personally, I haven't come up with some, some kind of theoretical framework in terms of engaging people who don't read and write uh, to understand the, the complexities of the world. I haven't come up with a framework. You know, I know simply just talking is simply not going to do it because just too much to, it's just too much to, 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 to take in you know, to understand how the world, how the world actually works. So it's a very difficult situation that we find ourselves in, but certainly those who are, those who are in the universities, those who graduate from the universities, uh, those, those who, you know, uh, who are self-motivated in terms of reading, like Malcolm X or Khalif Browder, those kind of individuals rise to the occasion and they begin to understand precisely in terms of, you know, what's going on in the world and the complexity in terms of waging war. But it's a step-by-step process. And so nobody in, anticipates or expects the masses of people to absorb or to understand everything across the board in terms of how the wars, in terms of how they are conducted. But on a fundamental level, what we do expect is people at least to understand that these, there are certain wrongs being perpetuated against Africa, and that Africa, if it doesn't take a stand, stands in more danger in terms of actually being depopulated. And that is a very real danger. So I think, I, I think, Brother Africa, you know, um, you know, we, we, you know that's, there's so much to grasp. And then in addition to that, then we also got, in America, we got the cultural wars. We, uh, you know, we got, you know, um, and we have these, we have these political organizing around issues, you know, around, you know, uh, as opposed to understanding the fundamental reality in terms of how the system operates. We, we focus on, say, for instance, uh, animal rights, or we focus on, um, um, or, we, or we focus on um, environmental issues, or we focus on the, uh, gay rights or whatever. That's all those rights are fine. There's certainly issues that have to be resolved. We have to address those issues. There's no question about that. But the problem, but the problem is that there's, there's a catalyst behind all of those issues. There's one driving force behind all those issues, and that is capitalism. So unless those groups are willing to acknowledge that capitalism is the primary motiv- motiva- motivator in terms of proliferating these, these very issues that they articulate, then there's no way possible for us to move forward, you know, cer- certainly as a group. So we can't move together as a group in terms of, you know, trying to, to eradicate capitalism. And at the very minimum, the African community has to take responsibility upon its own shoulders in terms of doing what we can in terms of ensuring the, 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 uh, the development and the growth of Africa. And so we do all that we can to make sure that we, we have a relationship with Africans on the continent to make sure that they understand, that we understand, you know, precisely what the deal is and what's going on. Because a lot of times, information that we have access to, brothers and sisters back home don't have access to that kind of information. So by providing that kind of information, uh, then we, we, we hope, you know, that it does have an impact in terms of you know, enlightening, you know, such a young population in Africa to become more politically active. And I think they are. I think the situation is changing, I think, uh, throughout Africa more and more, increasingly more and more young people are actually engaged in terms of political process, and they're beginning to question in terms of their leadership and being able to question the way things are. So with that kind of process, of course, we have to keep going. So, you know, uh, it's so much to grasp, but nonetheless, it's what we have to do. Brother Anthony, can you weigh in on this? Yes. On this aspect of- um, let's see. Uh, warfare takes many forms. And uh, and that's something that uh, that, uh, that 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 a lot of people don't understand, and and it's the imperialist uh, media's job to uh, to keep people confused on this issue. And uh, in addition to uh, physical or military action, economic warfare is very common. 
and very pervasive, which you alluded to earlier when you talked about what's happening with Cuba, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, and numerous other countries. If you don't toe the line of the imperialists, you're subject to economic warfare or what they call sanctions and blockades. But that's also a common form of warfare. And probably the most insidious is uh, cultural warfare, attacks on people's culture, their cultural values, because that gets at the core of their ideological belief system. And, and, and a people's ideological belief system defines their relationship among people and with other people. And uh, it's an insidious form because it's probably the sneakiest form and most insidious form of warfare of all. And, uh, and that is what we have to uh, wage the primary fight against. Uh, the co-optation of uh, cultural values and uh, the attacks on uh, on our culture, and that is why it's important for revolutionary parties to lead the ideological struggle. It's the toughest aspect of the struggle because it doesn't have obvious physical manifestations, but once that's won, the other the other struggles become a lot easier because uh, the enemy dominates by controlling the way people think. And that is why waging the class struggle and other struggles are so difficult because uh, a lot of people are conditioned to think a certain way as a result of the work of uh, imperialism. And uh, that's uh, done through uh, literature, arts, uh, religion, etc. But that fight has to be waged. And uh, it is on the, those who are, who, who are part of the revolutionary intelligentsia to produce sufficient quantities of cadre to engage in that fight. Brother Moses, you'd like to weigh in on this? Your thoughts? I think we are lost, Brother Moses. What we're going to do right now, panelists, we're going to take a Revolutionary Culture Break, and when we come back, we're going to discuss some interesting articles on issues that you need to know. We'll be right back. You are listening to Africa on the Moon. So vast, so great. The African embrace. The color of life. Universal harmony. The earth supports our conscious effort. 
for sustained humanity. Human beings. Human love. On a spiritual tip. So vast. So great. The African embrace. Live beyond love beyond your skin to where you belong.
on and on. On and on. Welcome back to Africa on the Moon. You're listening to Brother Africa. What we're going to do, if we should find it, we're going to stand behind it. We may not give you what you want, but we definitely do our best to give you what you need. This is a weekly radio program. You can dial in every Sunday evening from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, U.S. Right now, we're going to move to our segment, which is, as you know, this is part four. Issues that you need to know. We can go into some selected articles that we have read and would like to discuss them, and we'd like for you to take some time and look them up and read them. But this is information that you need to know. The first article is titled, you can go to Where Seal Criminal Records Are Not. Where Seal Criminal Records Are Not. Um, this article deals with the NYPD can see millions of arrest records that were supposed to be sealed. The New York City Police Department digitally, digitally warehoused more than 6.9 million sealed arrest records. New documents exclusively obtained by HuffPost by Mike Haynes. He the one who wrote this article. Go to her post and um, look this article up. It's something that definitely is something that you need to know, brothers and sisters. So we're going to discuss this article. I'll start out with you, Brother Haki, with this particular article. It raises some issues, but one of the issues that definitely raised for me is that there seems to be no limitation, no authority to govern um, the official police departments within the borders of the United States. When you look at this article, Brother Hackey, talk to us in terms of issues or concerns that you have by looking at this article. Yeah, I, I, I think to sort of underscore is, you know, this whole issue in terms of fascism. I mean, there's no accountability by the police. In fact, uh, this violation of particular law in terms of, uh, you know, maintaining you know, old records goes back 40 years. So the notion that the New York Police Department is not aware that legally what they're doing was, was wrong uh, uh, falls on deaf ears. So I think clearly they understood, in fact, what they're doing, in fact, was wrong. But it really doesn't matter, simply because they're empowered to do anything they want to do and everything they want to do. And this doesn't bode well in terms of, you know, um, the so-called uh, uh, mores that exist in society. But supposedly you're innocent until proven guilty. But in fact, by keeping these old records around, uh, you're actually you're actually you're continuously guilty. And there was a situation in New York where the young man uh, was living upstate, and uh, he got some trouble previously at, the, at, the, as a younger, at a younger age. And what happened was that um, uh, they uh, showed some pictures to a, to, a, to, a, to a young lady to identify. The first time, the young lady couldn't identify, but then the second time she did identify him as a culprit, and it turns out he wasn't a culprit, but unless she identified him as, because apparently the New York Police Department pressured her to say he was a man. And so it was easier for them, and it, it makes sense, because by pressuring her to say he was a man, he has a history that suggests that he engaged in criminal criminal activity before, and so therefore 
it makes much easier, uh, much for makes for much easier case in terms of convicting him, simply because of his past. Even you know, so clearly you know this this thing you know uh, I think anybody who understands and is concerned about fascism in society, got to understand that when we talk about you know creeping fascism, I think important we understand that it's not creeping that it's actually here. So clearly, you know uh, that is the thing that comes to mind when I when I read this piece. Brother Anthony, what you take from this article? Uh, well, let's see. Several uh, well, let's see several concerns that once that you once get into any trouble, into any trouble involving, the, involving police, the police, even if you're found innocent or your or or your your records are sealed, supposedly, they can be uh, the police still have access to them. And they can go after can you go later after later you on in life over an life, incident over that's, an unrelated that's unrelated uh, to what you were originally uh, involved, you were involved in. in. And that's very and troubling. That's very so troubling. that means so that any time any encounter that the police could follow you the rest of your life, whether you're found innocent or not. Yes. yes, the danger behind the danger this, behind this is, that this is that this information is not only available to the New York police force, but also to police forces throughout the U.S. and even even outside the U.S. in foreign countries. So this is a very dangerous tool. That could be used to to persecute people, you know, you know, for any reason, even even their political views. Brother Moses, based on what you heard, what you what you make of make of this phenomenon of seal cases supposed to be sealed, but. But we have found that the uh, NYPD department in New York and probably other departments, but at least they say they have found this one. They have taken those records and they have digitized them. They have put them in databases. Not in just that database, other databases where policemen around the country have access to your to your um, past cases. What you what you make of just this whole phenomenon, Brother Moses? What's your take? Well, right on the subject, right on the subject there is the school school to prison pipeline, um, um, which which was um, perpetuated by No Child Left Behind, and any anyway, uh, the the police, you know, try to give give people a record and once they give them a record they can get them into the system and and exploit them and keep them there forever basically and um one example of that is is um this, this black um ex ex NFL player who is who is now who also was an ex astronaut as a matter of fact so it just shouldn't be too hard to to find him um Anyway, he test, he's saying that uh, when he was 18, uh, the po- and out on a date with his, with his girlfriend, 
in a car, and the police stopped them, and then they took the girlfriend out of the car and tried to convince her to say that he was raping her so that they could arrest him. And uh, she she didn't consent to that, and fortunately it didn't happen. But I'm just going to show you that uh, had, had he gotten into the court system, uh, he would have never been an ex-NFL player. He would have never been an ex-astronaut. But... Uh, you know, the racism exists. Uh, the police department has got institutionalized racism and how they conduct their, their paperwork and everything. And, uh, and so it's a real problem. Thank you. Thank you. Well, panelists, I'm wondering in terms of this practice, how widespread you think it may be throughout the country as based on the um, uh, police offices that use this information to to arrest, evict, or to set up innocent people. Do you think, let me get to the New York area, or do you think this is maybe by now most of these these agencies are using it, are using sealed records and keeping them on file? From the article, I get the sense that this might be happening all over the U.S. Because uh, from what I read, this database was developed with the help of Microsoft. And I think they made it available to the police forces throughout the U.S. So it raises the question, what's the use of having a sealed record if the courts can't reinforce it, Brother Hackey? If the judges say things and, the, and they can't reinforce it, what's, what, is, what is the advantage of having a sealed record? What is the advantage of maintaining sealed records? Right. Or even having well, it if they allow well, this to take place. I'm sorry, sir, Dean. I'm sorry, sir, Dean. We've got an echo. We've well, got an echo going on. the concept of seal records is the records are not really sealed. How do the public benefit from this? Well, I, the public doesn't benefit from, you know, from uh, having still seal records revealed. Um, so uh, the only real benefit is to the, to the, to the police. And the whole notion in terms of, you know, by, uh, you know, having a pool to which to draw from, you can increase your um, conviction rate. So you can take people who have a history in terms of maybe crimes when younger, uh, you know, uh, similar crime happens, you can just bring them in and, 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 and uh, pressure, you know, pressure some witness to justify that they, in fact, were the ones responsible for the crime, and that person is going upstate. So the only real benefit, only tangible benefit, is certainly to the police and to the state. Uh, in fact, the mere fact that the state allowed this to happen, you don't see the federal government coming down on New York for what it did, speaks volumes in terms of the kind of support police has when engaged in, in, in criminal activity. Uh, so clearly there's a double standard in the society. So one one for citizens and one for law enforcement. So that speaks volumes in and of itself. So I think people got to be very concerned about, you know, this, this, this propensity that exists with respect to law enforcement. Okay, that's when I got to transition to another interesting article. We asked our audience, get a chance, please um, look up this article and and read it. It's, it's something that you need to know. 
particularly as we begin to um, discuss and fight and struggle around again this phenomenon of slavery, you know, who benefited from it? Who who um played a role or um continuing this institution? This question of those who was affected by it, how do you make a right and wrong, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Interest of the article titled Three Ways America Elite Universities Benefits from Slavery. Let me read that again. Three Ways America's Elite Universities Benefited from Slavery. We read the article, the author, I believe, was K. Kelly. And um, you get a chance to look it up, and it, it talks about the sole question of slavery in relationship to the development of the so-called elite universities. For my panelists tonight, I think the central question is around why do you think it's become coming more um, fashionable now for institutions and people begin to openly talk about how they benefit from slavery? Reading this particular article on how elite universities benefit from slavery, what is the major conclusion you think one should draw from this? And how do we make them um, accountable for them using slavery as a means to create the various institutions and empower themselves? Uh, I'll start with you, Brother Anthony. Yes. Yes. Slate. The, the major un, uh, the the elite universities in the United States were founded by slave owners, which means they got their wealth from cattle enslavement and the slave trade. Uh, it's not explicitly mentioned in this article, but Brown University was founded by two slave trading. Uh, brothers, brothers who made their fortune made their off, of, uh, off of trading, uh, slave trading and slaves in the New England region, New England Providence, region. Rhode, Island, Providence Rhode Island to be exact. And this article mentions this article that the first nine presidents, nine presidents of Princeton of University, Princeton were, slave owners. were slave owners. At some point at during, some their point careers, during their careers, and in some cases during their tenure, tenure as president of the university. Of the university. And, um, and um, Georgetown, for example, was, uh, was uh, you know, was founded uh, by, the was founded church, by the Catholic Church, and they and they, and they sold and slaves they sold in slaves order to settle debts. That were owned by the university. university. And uh, And, these universities uh, provided provided the ideological justification justification for the the enslavement of African people. And also profited from the slave trade. So they were as much a part of slavery as other institutions, such as the military, the church, and the government. And I think why this is coming out now is partly because of the struggle being waged by Africans for 
equal equal rights and uh, justice. Brother Hakeem. Yeah, I uh, you know the, the only thing I find appalling is just a sort of piggyback on what brother uh, brother uh, brother uh, brother brother articulated. Uh, the whole question around you know uh, the role it played in terms of uh, legitimizing slavery. Of course, we had the churches in terms of you know um, sta- uh, scripture which legitimized slavery. Then of course you had states uh, under guise of economics legitimizing slavery. Then here comes the, the academic uh, arena of legitimizing slavery. Certainly, the expectations are a bit different when it comes to academics. You expect people to be more objective in terms of their understanding of the world. But the mere fact that they endorsed slavery and they had slaves speaks volumes in terms of just how much they internalized. You know, notion in terms of, of inferiority based upon skin color. So this speaks volumes. So this speaks volumes in terms of you know how uh, the society is organized. Anytime you have the, the greatest mind uh, who uh, agree with such such nonsense, uh, it speaks volumes in terms of just how how precarious the situation is for people who happen to be uh, African people, you know, living in in Western in the Western world. You have any thoughts on that, brother Moses? Thank you. We have some problems with Brother Moses. What we're going to do is, yeah, in the article, they talk about many, as you do, Brother, I think, Anthony, uh, many university leaders own slaves. Not only that, they own slaves. And then, yes, yeah, schools yeah. Yeah. were tied to the slave trade. They sold, they sold slaves. Yes, Brother Moses, do we have you? Yeah. yeah. Um, um, we, we, the the school system is part of the superstructure upon the economic base, and the economic base is capitalism. And so the school structure reinforces and uh, justifies and rationalizes the economic base. And so they they become apologists for the for the slave system and uh, etc. And uh, to this day, they still defend capitalism for the most part. I mean. Uh, that's basically uh, what they do, and uh, so you know, as revolutionaries, we have to educate ourselves. I mean, sometimes we go through the school system and learn some things, but you know, our true education doesn't come from the school system; it comes outside of it. Uh, uh, and analyzing the world situation and, and being in a party, a political party that has that has uh, traditions and uh, uh, insights into what's going on. And so you know, this, we can't we can't really depend upon the school system. I mean, this, the school system is. It justified, and uh, it's no surprise that they and they benefited from slavery. I mean, of course they did. Of course they did. Thank you. Thank you. Panelists, is there enough? Is there is there enough? What's word? What's word for? To reward those who've been affected by it, those who've been victimized, by just giving some of their children the right to attend the same school they enslaved, that they raised money, that sold their poor parents. Is that enough for them to sit in the classroom? 
and receive a damn degree to represent the same ideas that enslaved them from the beginning? What would be the right appropriate uh, retribution from these kind of institutions from your, from, from your perspective? Would it be too much? Maybe those institutions should give half ownership of the institution to the African community? Get properties that they really own, where they acquire as a result of it, where we can use for our own self-interest? Or is it that they never could be really truly repay back all of those they inflicted this kind of harm to? I don't think I don't, I don't think, think it could ever be repaid, especially if the society that's responsible for it is still intact. Uh, there has, in order for a true repair to take place or reparations, you imperialism has to be defeated. Uh, the, institutions uh, the institutions that gave a uh, rise to this to imperialism that still wreaks havoc upon African people and our communities worldwide and has been doing so for nearly five centuries cannot uh cannot you know repay that damage and still stay intact. Symbolically speaking, I think twenty-seven trillion dollars is not uh, twenty-seven on the low end. I would go as high as high as uh, hundred trillion dollars uh, for um, you know for the damage that they create and the free labor that they receive as a result of slavery. Uh, I think uh, the symbolism goes going far away, a long way in terms of you know punishing that kind of behavior. One of the things that if the people who per- the system that perpetuated slavery, if it is allowed to to continue to exist. And there's no real incentive for it to change its ways. But if they had to pay between 27 to 100 trillion dollars in terms of reparations, then certainly that would be a, 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 a point of contention in which, you know, maybe if they even consider the idea in terms of uh, reinstituting slavery, they would simply would quickly uh, end that discussion. So I think the symbolism of all is important. I, I, I think that uh, you know, um, so when people talk about this question in terms of reparations, I, you know, I don't dismiss it. I think it's very important in terms of at least acknowledging that an injustice was done. Uh, uh, you know, but in terms of just being able to actually uh, uh, make people uh, square people, you know, square people in terms of their uh, terms of the harm that was inflicted upon them, uh, probably not. It's just that the harm is just too great, uh, you know, and, it, and it's done damage to generations of, of, of African people. So the harm is just too great. There's no uh, real uh, way in terms of really compensating the masses of African people in, terms, in that regard. But the symbolism, I think, uh, you know, 27 to Hundred trillion dollars uh, will go a long way in terms of discouraging that kind of behavior in the future. 
What about looking at looking at the issue of crime against humanity? They 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 reveal information that will put them in the subject of your crime against humanity. Are there any harm or crime they should pay for the penalty? They should pay for the crimes that they commit against humanity, panelists. Or do everybody just walk away free and say, "I give you something"? Go ahead, brother Moses. Yeah, I agree with Brother Haki. Um, you know, the symbolism is, is there. Um, you know, the, the spirit of, um, of reparations and of, of repentance, uh, and somehow trying to redeem themselves with with, um, with some kind of uh, payment to, to the. Uh, there's definitely no way they're gonna make us whole, make whole the uh, situation and remedy the situation, but. If somebody the guess is, is in order, and you know it's a political and, you know, it's issue, a political and issue ultimately the government is could be the the the, the real key source of, of uh, reparations because it, it was a government it was a government institutionalized policy that that really really is is the key factor if we're going to look for real reparations in this the government, uh, although definitely. Companies and corporations have their responsibilities too. Thank you. Thank you. Is there any kind of omission of crime against humanity? If they have committed a crime, how do you get them to pay for their crime against humanity? Brother Hackey, Brother Anthony, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, well, uh, it was, there's well, no it question that no chattel question slavery that was a crime against humanity. against humanity. But uh, you, but, but the only way to get the uh, the, the imperialist uh, forces to pay for that crime is for them to be punished, be and that can only be done with the triumph, with the triumph of, uh, of socialism. Uh, socialism. Uh, let's see. As long as imperialism exists, they will not. They will not admit to that crime. Nor will they. Will they pay a penalty for it? Yeah. Well, you know these institutions that practice slavery were um, representative of the U.S. federal government. So it says the federal government owes a debt to African people. Uh, in particular. We talk about the kind of a damage inflicted upon the continent of Africa in terms of depopulating Africa in terms of slave trade, removing some of the most uh, uh, most prominent artisans, uh, scientists, and engineers from Africa to the West, created great damage in terms of the, the overall development of Africa. Not to mention the whole question in terms of uh, uh, slavery. So clearly, uh, you know, uh, it is a crime against crime against humanity. Uh, now the thing is that in terms of getting people, in terms of getting people to pay, that becomes very problematic because a lot of people perpetuated those injustices are no longer with us. But certainly, the institutions that perpetuated uh, those those crimes are still here with us. Certainly, the same government that's responsible for in terms of condoning and reinforcing, you know, uh, uh, such a such a such a plan are still in existence. And so, therefore, rightfully so. They should be the ones responsible uh, uh, in terms of uh, any type of monetary damage uh, that should be paid out as a result of um, a result of slavery. But there's no question about it, brother. After it is, and I concur wholeheartedly. You know, it's all about the um, it's all about crime against humanity, and I don't think anybody in the world who's right thinking is going to question that. 
Okay, parents, we're going to discuss our last article for today as it relates to issues that you need to know. And that was an article that was published called Black Left Views on America Elections Matter. It was written by Anna August. Again, the article is Black Left Views on America Elections. I guess for me the central thing is what is a black left what what is a black left or I seem like going backwards using the word black. If anything it should be African left views on American elections matter. What are the central thoughts that came to your mind when you read this article? What are so called African left or black left views in America? Uh, Brother Anthony, I start off with you. What that really means? What it meant to me, what I the takeaway from this article is the fact that Africans cannot can no longer rely upon the capitalist duopoly to address our grievances and and solve our problems. That has something. That is something we have to organize ourselves to resolve. And uh, And, appealing uh, to the lesser of two evils, we've tried that for for nearly a century. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. We just get we we just get we just get tossed around like a football, and you know our problems don't get really solved. The the methods by which we're oppressed change, but. But the essence of our oppression doesn't, doesn't end. And for that, and we for have that, to form have our own independent political organization with the candidates that we put up being accountable to the masses of, uh, of African people and not to our enemies. Well, Haki, your response? Yeah, I, I think it's, yeah, I think it's pretty clear that this yeah, this uh this whole um, Democrat Republican duopoly is all is all a game. Essentially, as Malcolm said, we're talking about two sides of the same coin. That's precisely what it is. And the fact that uh, Joe Biden got the nomination for the Democratic Party speaks volumes in terms of the kind of um um opposition uh that's employed by uh, the Democrat in terms of you know who actually comes who actually runs for office. Uh, there's no question about it. They're Overwhelming support in society was was um, Bernie Sanders. The mere fact the Democrats orchestrated a, a, a move to ensure that he didn't get the nomination speaks volumes in terms of where their interests lie. The interests lie clearly with corporate America. Corporate America interest does not lie with the interests of African people, working people, or poor people. So clearly, you know, uh, it's, it's time to think much, much larger. And uh, independent party is certainly something that we did back in the sixties and the seventies. It's something that we have to reinstitute because the reality is that you know. Um, those parties make it possible, at the very least, to, to create organization in the African Union, which is so desperately needed, but more importantly, to serve as a platform to articulate the concerns of African people, which is by and large dismissed you know, by corporate media. So clearly, I, I agree with the, with the article. I thought it was a good, good, very good piece, and uh, you know, I, I will concur uh, with the brother. Brother Moses, you would like to have a say on this subject matter?
come back to Brother Moses. What I would like to do, uh, panelists, can you about two minutes, if you could speak to both parties in terms of um, them addressing the interests of the African communities, the African people in general, if you could speak to them in terms of why you would not support them, what would you say? Uh, uh, I would say I would that say I wouldn't support, I would support either party, either party because, because they are responsible for the for the 400 years of exploitation and oppression that have got us to this present state. And uh, and, uh, and uh, we need and uh, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and only and, thing and that will permanently that solve, our solve our problems is a new system. A new system. And uh, in and which the in the, which the land the, rights the of the indigenous, rights of indigenous people of the Western Hemisphere are recognized, and our right and to our repatriate home is recognized. But, um, but um, at this point in time, this point in time there's, uh, there's history has shown, uh, shown that neither the that Democratic neither or the Republican parties Republican care anything, parties about, care the anything about the masses of, um, of uh, struggling humanity. Anyone else? Brother Moses, what would you say to the parties? Well, I, I think well, that, you know, that this is a fascist threat that we are faced with here. This is not not an academic or scholarly intellectual problem, but it's a real material and political problem. And uh, fascism, you know, just like the COVID-19 is very real. And so we need to unite to... Uh, Stop the the tide. We stem the fascist tide while we can, because you know if he gets in four more years, there's no telling what will happen. And so you know I take this very very seriously, and uh, and uh, and uh, I think you know we need to vote on this and and get him out of office. That's my position. I'll leave it right there. Thank you. And brother Haki. You know, I thought I thought Brother Anthony pretty thought, much thought, uh, summed it up. Uh, summed it up. Okay. On that note, what we're going to do? We're going to pause, and when we come back, we're going to get our panelists' final thoughts for tonight, Part Four: Issues That You Need About. You listen to Africa on the Move as your host, Brother Africa. We could continue to strive to go forward, Apple, and back with Apple. We'll be right back with our final thoughts. Water and chains, living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. 
How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be strong to last through my journey. Yeah, last through my journey. We must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. We must prepare and learn how to care, for soon we'll be there where our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be to know. That I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 made it through my journey, made it through my journey, Hellerino. A bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia. A scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights, pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun, pronouncing his presence. Pellerino is the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go.
If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine, Palestine. needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine. Needs, our love. needs our love. Palestine, Palestine. needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love. Needs there seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth. Take a stand for justice, that's what we've got to do. Cause Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs, our love. needs our love. People of all countries, of every race and creed, we need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed. Plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom, that's right. Palestine needed freedom, and all other oppressed people need their freedom. We welcome you back to Africa on the Moon. We now go to our political panelists for the day and analysts for the day, as they will give us their final thoughts for today's program, which is on September 13, 2020, Part 4, Issues That You Need to Know. Start off with Brother Anthony, not Brother Anthony, Brother Moses. Come to you first, Brother Moses. Just give us your final thoughts for today's program. Brother Moses, the mic is thank, yours. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, Brother Esther. Um, I, I don't want to leave uh, off the air without saying um, presente for Kevin Zeese. Kevin Zeese passed, passed on last Sunday into the other land. And, uh, and you know, he was a real revolutionary, a fighter for freedom, fighter, um, he was one of the four who occupied the Venezuelan embassy and supported the Chavistas, and uh, and he also um, supported Manning in his in his in his just struggle uh, uh, with WikiLeaks 
and he supported uh, Julian Assange. Uh, he was with. He also used to be head of the normal National Organization of Repeal, the marijuana laws, and uh, he's just been in the struggle for a long time, and he passed away of a heart attack, I understand. He was only 64, I believe, 64, and um, he will be missed, and I, I just wanted to say, Presante, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Brother Haki, keep us your final thoughts for the night. Yeah, you know, the, uh, the, the, the level of injustice inflicted upon African people knows no bounds. Recently in Minnesota, a case involving a uh, cop that shot uh, George Floyd. The prosecutors, you know, inadvisedly met with the, uh, the, the, uh, the coroner. The coroner. That was, unle- that was illegal. It was simply because any time you talk to anybody and you're, and you're representing the state, then you want to make sure that some independent witnesses to verify the fact what you're saying is legit and that you don't create a situation where you create, uh, you know, uh, fake information or you encourage the particular person that you're interviewing to lie. Well, they went behind the scene and they actually met with his coroner without independent verification of what was discussed. So fortunately, the judge did kick them all off the case. But the bottom line is that they did that specifically in terms of making sure that manufacture evidence to make sure that that cop be acquitted. This is a danger that we're confronted with. We're not just talking about individuals in terms of in terms of callous toward African people. We're talking about an entire system. These prosecutors represent a system, and they're very clear on that point. Their 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 focus is not justice. It's not. It's not equality before the law. It's not any of that stuff. It's all about serving the interests of the state. And this is the problem that we're confronted with as a people. We got another recourse but to wake up and realize what the reality is. Even if we don't want to deal with it, for the sake of our children, we have to confront the reality and plan for the future. Having said that, Brother Africa, you know, I always call, encourage people, you know, to unravel the matrix. And, um, in doing so, you know, uh, we can make things much easier for us in terms of longevity in the society. But having said that, Brother Africa, you have a, you have a good night. And you the same, Brother Haki. Thank you for your contribution to today's program. you now go to Brother Anthony. And Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight. My final thought for tonight is we're facing a relentless and powerful enemy. And the only solution to, uh, and, and way to defeat this, this enemy is through Pan-Africanism, one unified socialist Africa. And to learn more about Pan-Africanism and uh, our party, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, please visit our website www.a-aprp-gc.org and remember to or join an organization that is working for our people's liberation. Thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Good night. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Good night to you for your contributions to today's program. And to our listening audience, we'd like to thank you as well and the participants who share our weekly program with your network. We just want to remind you that you must remember that we need information. Without information, you cannot think. But with that information, you need to be organized. We encourage you to be involved and participate and support the organization. 
that is fighting to help liberate your people and humanity from all of the various forms of oppression. You must be organized, you must have information, and then you must act. You must act, you must put your theory and your thoughts and your actions all together, and the only way you can do that is through an organization. So we encourage you, please join the organization that is fighting for the liberation of your people and humanity again. Remember, we come on every Sunday evening from 1, every Sunday evening from 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to 9 p.m. We come here, we come on in the spirit of speaking truth to power and to give you information that you need. may not be the information that you want, but we try our best to give our people what they need. And we encourage you to become a participant. If you'd like to be a participant, have something you'd like to say or share what's going on in your community, email us at africaonthemove2 at com. Until next time, like always, you can subscribe to go forward wherever, back with never, and make you and make you understand that if you truly love you, your people, then you must be in the act of sharing and carrying that love out for your people. You just can't think about it. You must be in the act of doing. So if you love your people, you must show that love through positive actions. Until next time, again, let's try to go forward ever, backward never, and remember, Africa is always on the move. We leave you with
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.